Yo, what up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 17 of Dart Against Humanity. As you all know, recently this thing happened where uh, Robert Glasper mentioned about an event that happened 20 years ago, which was a matter of public record, in which a group of songwriters and musicians, uh, collectively known as New Ark, uh, sued Lauren Hill for credit and possibly future royalties and all these other things that should have come with their proper credit on their work on um, Lauren Hill's The Miseducation of Lauren Hill album. See, the original version of Lauren Hill's album was released, I believe uh, the release date was August 26, 1998. Now, I remember the release date because I was working at Tower Records at the time it was released. And um, was it the 25th or the 26th? But when it was released, I remember the liner notes and the album credits. And the thing was that the album is amazing, the album's brilliant, but we were all under the impression that Lauren pretty much did everything. And she had musicians, of course, come in and, you know, she, she had people like help or whatever. But it was pretty much something that she executed all herself. It was all her. Everything came from her mind. And now, at the time, I was 23. And I knew people in the music industry and knew people who, you know, wrote, produced, uh, worked at, at labels and one of the people that actually worked on that album at the time he, he was credited as Che Guevara from Roxbury but his name is Che Pope you probably know him he's at one time ran um, good music he's done a bunch of other things his production credits are in, insane if you look them up on Discogs but I knew Che as a guy who was working with um, Wyclef. Uh, so there were two Bostonians that were working with, they were working with uh, the refugee camp. First there was Che, who was also, before that, he was a, um, a protege of Teddy Riley. And the other person was a girl named Marie. Rap named Marie Antoinette, better known as Free, who was down with the Refugee All Stars. So they had two Bostonians in the camp. So, of course, you know, in Boston, we hear things. Well, it comes out later, Che is pissed off because he produced No, 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 the one that blew Destiny's Child up. But of course, you know, Wyclef took credit. Now, there's a lot of stuff that happened with them where T-Bass or um, Jerry Wonder Duplessis actually did a lot of the work. You know, he had a lot of other people come in and do stuff. And Wyclef would, you know, lay a guitar on it, you know, and put his stank on it and rhyme on it. And, you know, he figured it'd sell better if he put his name on it. And so that's how No, 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 part two, you know, Wyclef gets credit for blowing up Destiny's Child when, you know, imagine you're the person that actually did it and 
Now you just got to sit there and take it. And then it happens again and again and again and again. And the game is the game. Um, now imagine you did a lot of work on what turns out to be the biggest album of 1998. And you're like, wait a minute. I know for a fact that in 10, 15, 20 years from now, when people are praising this album and it sells however many units it sells and wins all the accolades and awards, Lauren Hill is going to be remembered forever for releasing and making one of the greatest albums of all time by herself when that's not the case. So there were a lot of people that didn't get their proper credit in the first version of this album's credits and that was going to be detrimental to their careers and their earning potential and it would just be wrong so she was sued and this of course was a matter of public record and this lawsuit went on for over two years and I think it got resolved in early 2001 and the lawsuit officially came down right around Winter 1998 And the album came out So the album came out At the end of summer So late August 1998 And the lawsuit was was officially filed I believe in December 1998 So when Lauren Hill won all them Grammys This had already happened But uh, again I guess if you were of certain age, you had no clue that this happened. But it's weird because Robert Glasper, when he did the interview and he said flat what he said, because he, of course, he worked for Lauren. A lot of people I know have been musicians that have worked for Lauren. I know a lot of people that have worked for Lauren over the years or Miss Hill. And this, as far as I thought, of course, I'm old. I just turned 43. This was public knowledge and here's the other part of it i understand that people will come to will come to me and say look i wasn't of age when that happened so there's no way i would know it here's the thing the miseducation of lauren hill is such a big album that it's one of the things that when the media when it comes to the media especially online media it's one of the things that they do coverage of non-stop so it's 2018 now. We're about, I'd say, 13, 12 years into the blog era. So that means that 2008 and 2013 should have been two anniversary opportunities for the 10th and 15th where people wrote about this album at length and it should have dominated the news cycle. August 2008 August 2015 So sure you weren't around for 20 years ago but shit were you around 10 years ago were you around 5 years ago Cause somebody had to write a piece On one of these goddamn news News outlets Or media conglomerate Sites or whatever the fuck That covered The fucking lawsuit That was a matter Of public fucking Record Somebody had to do it. How in the entire fuck can something so big happen 
to one of the biggest albums of the past 20 years and nobody write about the shit or even fuck fuck nobody wrote about it nobody did the goddamn research and it just stumbled it, it ain't on the it ain't on the wikipedia page it ain't on anything it ain't, it's listed nowhere nobody reads so yes i do understand that yes it happened 20 years ago and it got resolved 18 years ago and if you weren't around you didn't pay attention but god damn it that's pretty big. There were printings. Think about how many albums were sold between that span span of time. And I remember, of course, I I, I was working at record stores during this time. So I remember the first wave of liner notes and album credits. And then I remember when they were amended. And I remember looking at the amended notes. And I remember seeing the changes and who got credited for what. And I remember it was a big deal then. And somehow, when the pieces were written about this album in, in following years, this didn't come up ever? It's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big part of the album. And then, think about all the people that wrote pieces about, hey, um... Lauren Hill never made another album as big. Maybe it was like her um her thriller. Cause you know, uh Michael Jackson never made an album as big as Thriller. You know, it was just too big. Here's the difference. Before Michael Jackson made Thriller, he made this album called Off the Wall. Off the Wall is way better than Thriller. It is. It is. Is it bigger? No. Is it better? Yes. Is it as, as epic as Thriller? I'd say yes. But to the overwhelming majority of people, or casual music fans, no. Because they'd say that Thriller is the album. But anybody who actually knows music, and again, anybody who actually knows music will tell you, off the fucking wall. All fucking day. Oh, and Chris Rock, Baby Be Mine, is a fucking masterpiece. It's a gem. For you to say that's the worst song on that album, you're out of your goddamn mind. I know he ain't listening to this. Why am I talking to him? But anyway, back to the point I was trying to make. It is hilarious to how this news spread and how everybody was like oh, taken aback by something that I thought was common knowledge. And turns out more people thought it was common knowledge. But then you look at the people who thought it was common knowledge. And you realize that these people were part of the music community and they were past a certain age. And then there were plenty of people that were well-known, well-informed, uh, well uh, smart people that just they had no clue. They didn't know. And, I mean, I that makes sense. But to me, the thing was just, it was insane how this news reverberated. People were like, oh my God. And I'm like, dude, just Read. Right there in your face. Two years. So, that's all I want to say about that. It's just crazy how much history and knowledge is just not never been accessed. And it's even sadder because that being such a big album and so many fucking pieces been written about it. So much coverage, so much has been said about it. And that's been brought up so little that 20 years later, it's a surprise to people. When it's a matter of public knowledge. Or so I thought. So, whatever. Now, let's talk about something else. 
there was something that I was pondering and I was talking about with a couple of people. And it was the concept. It started with a Twitter conversation where we were talking about uh, Cypress Hill. And then it started talking about like uh, winter albums. Or I was talking specifically about winter albums. Here's the thing. The concept of winter albums versus summer albums. There's a difference. And also, I just want to point out one thing. R&B doesn't have a fucking winter and summer albums distinction. It just doesn't. Sade isn't considered winter music. It's just when you're sad. You know? It's just mood music. There's mood music for R&B. There's not seasonal R&B. There just isn't. I've never heard anybody describe R&B as being seasonal. I have heard them do it with rap. So rap has winter albums and there are summer albums. Here's the difference. A summer album is typically an album that is associated with summer. Whether that means that it blew up in the summer or was released in the summer. So it's attached to the summer and people automatically think of summer when they hear it. Okay? The winter album is quite different. The winter album doesn't have to be released in the winter. There are a significant deal of winter rap albums that were actually released in the summer. Case in point, Cypress Hill's first album. Cypress Hill, Cypress Hill. It comes out in in August. It starts creeping up around September, October. By the time we get to Thanksgiving, it starts gaining more and more momentum. How can I just kill a man? By the time we get to Christmas, it's one of the biggest Christmas items under the tree or as a stocking stuffer. By the time we get to the new year, it's even bigger. I'll never forget when Juice came out. When Juice came out and you hear on the soundtrack and then you watch the film and they have How Could I Just Kill a Man in a scene at the house party? That was emblematic. That sold the whole crowd because Cypress Hill's album, that shit was the shit that winter. And his was crazier. If you go back and check, and you can now, If you go back and check the next winter, the following winter, if you go to uh, Billboard and you check the um, the top black albums, you will see Cypress Hill's album re-enter the charts and fly up it because people started buying it again the next winter. So that solidifies it as a winter album, an all-time great rap winter album, alongside like. Jizzes, Liquid Swords. That's a great winter album. Now, the difference is with summer albums, typically they were released sometime in the spring or summer. If they were released in the spring, they blew up in the summer. If they were released in the summer, they came out and they immediately made an impact. So let's talk about rap summer albums because people, we, we don't really talk about them. Now, something we have to keep in mind 
with rap albums did rap albums were released so infrequently in 1984 1985 1986 was like the first year we had like a significant albums being released but 87 and 88 and 89 is when it just blew up so if you're looking for a summer album in the earlier years you're gonna be shit out of luck because there weren't that many albums that came out so we got to start with like i don't know like 87 so when i think about summer 87 i think the big rap albums were uh ll cool j's bigger and deffer which was released just as the school year was ending uh, we gotta think about Eric B and Rakim Paid in Full which was released that July and also another album that was released that July was um, Ice T's Ryan Pays if you look it up it's gonna say that Ryan Pays came out weeks afterwards no they came out the same day alright I remember they came out the same day Everybody wants to tell you they came out three weeks later. Bullshit, it came the same day. And there's another album that blew up that summer, which was actually released in the spring. And that's Dana Dane's Dana Dane with Fame. So I want you to keep that in mind. So those are the th- those were like the albums that summer. Uh, 1988, there were so many albums, and I've covered them in the 1988 piece I did on Medium. Like EPMD, Eric B and Rakim, uh, MC Light. There were a gang of them. Stetsasonic in full gear. Uh, Public Enemy, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. Salt and Pepper, Salt with a Deadly Pepper. There's a long, long list of them. There's like 20. It's really stupid and ridiculous. Uh, if we jump to 89, what can I remember? Um, There was BDP. Uh, Ghetto Music, The Blueprint of Hip Hop, which I also think that um, in 88, BDP's um, By Any Means Necessary is also considered a summer album. It came out in the spring and it blew up in the summer. Um, DLC's No One Can Do It Better, big summer 1989 album, and it stayed a big album going into the school year. Um, What's another one I could think of? Heavy D and the Boys Big Time. Bam. That was a huge summer album. Anybody who mentions rap summer albums and does not drop Heavy D and the Boys big time, they wasn't fucking around. I don't mean they wasn't fucking around like they mean it. I mean they wasn't fucking around as in they were not around. Like, that album was so big, Summer 1989. Like... Girls They Love Me, More Bounce, We Got Our Own Thing. Oh, my God. If you threw that on, it was a rap. It was a rap when you threw that song on. So, okay, let me think. What was 1990? 1990, um, Let the Rhythm Hit America Be and Rock Him, of course. Um, Run For Cover was on the soundtrack for um, House Party. Uh, what was it? What else? Um, X Clan to the East backwards, backwards. My mistake. X Clans to the East backwards. It was crazy to see an Afrocentric album like that really blow up over the summer, because summer is not ideal for Afrocentric gear. You can't be wearing the long robes and and the leather hats, carrying the big stick and doing all that shit. It's summer. <laughs> 
FOI don't wear short sets. Why not? It's hot. Damn. You know what I'm saying? Look at X Clan's gear. I don't. They they didn't wear short sleeves. So for that album to blow up in the summer, it had to be fire. Um, Ice Cube's America's Most Wanted was big that summer too. Once upon a time in the projects, yo, damn near had to wreck hope. And it's crazy because um, that album did not get much uh, airplay. Like the radio didn't really support it. Who's the Mac? I think like that was the only video to really get burned on Yo MTV Raps and um, BT's Rap City. Because this is probably the only thing. Like I don't think Ice Cube really had videos until he released um, Kill It Will. The EP. And that's when Dead Homies and Jacket for Beats came out. And that's when, um, yeah, really, he started to really um, come out there. Uh, 1991, what, what was, um, NWA's Niggas for Life or E44 Zagging, if you can't say that. I can. I earned the right. Um, Ice T's Original Gangster. What else? Um, Leaders of the New School, Future Without a Past, that dropped in the summer was a big deal. It really carried over into the school year, though. This, it really carried over to the school year. Because the first single came out the previous school year. At the end of the previous school year. It's just another case of that or PTA. So, like, that carried it over, really, until, like, we get to the sob story era. Um... What did I leave out? Main source is Breaking Adams. Uh, me and Jay Zone keep having this conversation. That album more than likely came out in the spring, but it's credited as coming out in June and in, 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 in like near near the summer. But it more than likely came out during the spring because a lot of, a lot of people have told me that they had that album sooner than it's listed that it came out. But yeah, Main Source is Breaking Adams definitely is a, was a summer album in ninety one, um, ninety two. Gangstar's Daily Operation, of course. Uh, Pete Rock and CL Smooth, Mecca and the Soul Brother. The tape that people remarked was so long, you could leave it in your car, drive to work, get back in the car, drive home from work, get back in the car, drive back to work, get in the car, drive home from work, get in the car again on the drive back to work, and that's when tape side A finally ends. Yeah. Let me tell you something. I had many a ride on the iron horse before side A finally ended. Listening to Pete Rock and CL Smooth's Mechanic Soul Brother and side B. That tape was well worth the money I spent. And it, my batteries did not get any type of fucked up because I didn't do any fast forwarding no fast forwarding um what else oh Arab and Rakim don't sweat the technique because Arab and Rakim released all their albums in the summer apparently like they released them all in July I think so Arab and Rakim don't sweat the technique so um EPMD business of a personal they released a couple albums in the summer Business of a Personal was a 92 summer album. It really carried until like um like the fall and, and winter. Then they broke up. That was fun. Um 
House of Pain's first album. Really an album I associate with the summer. But like just to give you like an idea of early rap summer albums to give you the aesthetic. Like Nas's Illmatic is a summer album. It came out in sp- it came out in the spring, of course, but like it really was an album that we rode with in the summer. Summer ninety four. So I think that's why we love it so much because it it really signifies the end of that 93-94 school year whereas uh, Biggie's album really is a winter album because it came out during the fall, blew up during the winter months and like due to the nature of it, Ready to Die was really a dark winter introspective winter album. It's funny because by the same token, uh, Only Built for Cuban Links is considered a summer album, but I think it's an all-purpose album. Just like, I don't, I don't, I don't think Reasonable Doubt's a summer album necessarily. I feel like, even though... Like, we started playing that album. I really feel like people didn't appreciate that album when it first came out enough for it to be a summer album. I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will agree with me, or people who actually were around who experienced the fucking era will agree with me on that one. Um, but Only Built for Cuban Links is actually considered a summer album because it had such a reach when it came out during the end of summer. So... I feel like that's still a summer album, even though I feel like it's all purpose. It works just as well in the winter, but it's a summer album because when the purple tape came out, people just associate that with the fucking summer. And the lead single, of course, they associate with the summer. Um, The Infamous by Mob Deep. Summer album. Summer album, definitely. Motherfuckers went to high voltage in Boston, the downtown crossing, and they made Hennessy jerseys because of this fucking album and that video. Like, yeah, that's definitely some album. That's album I heard people driving around to. Um, Southern playlistic Cadillac music by Outkast. I'll, yeah, that's that was definitely a summer album. I would say that's a summer album. It worked just as well the next, like, in the fall and going into the winter, but I'll say that's a summer album. The Beat Nuts, the Beat Nuts, aka Beat Nuts Street Level. If you look at the spine, it says the Beat Nuts, Beat Nuts, but on the cover it says Street Level, and people say that that was supposed to be, that was a typo, and the album was actually supposed to be called Street Level, but either way, summer album. Summer album. Definitely. Uh, The Sun Rises in the East by... J. Rue, The Damager, I will go on record as saying that is a summer album. Now, what are, what's an what's a album that I think people don't necessarily think is a summer album? I don't associate it with a summer album. They just love the album, period, and don't really think about when it blew up. I feel like um, Return to the 36 Chambers, the dirty version, is a summer album. When you look at when it came out, Brooklyn Zoo kind of blew up towards the end of that school year, sure. But once the summer hit, that shit was everywhere. Everywhere. I don't know if 
everybody knew that that album was going to blow up like it did and it kind of crossed over. I think Shimmy Shimmy Y'all had a lot to do with it. I mean, when you look at the impact Old Dirty Bastard had on Mariah Carey's fantasy, think about this. The fantasy remix Mariah Carey. The original version of fantasy is spreading. They're playing it on BET. They're playing it on MTV. And it is um, the rotation on MTV. It enters the heavy rotation on MTV when they get the remix video. Okay? With Old Dirty Bastard in it. That's when it enters heavy rotation. Not only does it enter heavy rotation, but they don't play the original fantasy video at all anymore. Matter of fact, on BT, I've, I've broken this down before. They had multiple video channels. Video Vibrations, Video LP... Rap City, Video LP, you know, and and go down the list. I remember they would play the Fantasy Remix on all of those shows. I did not see the Fantasy video anymore. And that was because of Old Dirty Bastard. So I feel like I've sold this shit and my case is, is, is solidified. Return to the 36 Chambers of Dirty Version by Old Dirty Bastard is a summer album. And Stakes is High, I have to say, is a summer album. Now, I think the last episode I talked about how the, 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 the role Stakes is High made contrasting it with It Was Written for older heads made for us to think that It Was Written was a pronounced step down from Illmatic. But It Was Written is a summer album. I wasn't a huge fan of it when it came out because I'm old, but it's a summer album. I think younger people will definitely go along with that because I don't think that they were they were not trying to cop De La Soul's Stakes is High, apparently. Um, Wu-Tang Forever summer album. Wu-Tang Forever is definitely a summer album. I remember buying it on CD because I had to have it on CD. Double CD. That was money. Money that could have been spent on other things. But I don't regret it at all. Because it was on sale. Because it was Wu-Tang Clan. But it was a double CD. And... Oh, shit. Capone and Noriega, The War Report. Summer album. Definitely. Um, there's no other way to spin that one. That album was really underground but it blew up but here's the difference with that i consider it a summer album but i really think that when it blew up and it grew more and more it really happened more in the fall where it really crossed over and kind of blew up but for heads summer album definitely a summer album i was surprised when it started spreading and other people started um catching on to it by the time we get to um t-o-n-y invade and why you got beef, I got beef. And then when the drive and then when they, the split video for uh it was closer in driver's seat. I was like, yo, for real? Seriously? They they really rocking with this album like that. Damn. This shit's still going. Okay. I see y'all. Alright? Cause I thought this was an underground rap album. I was like Barrington Levy. Alright! Okay. I really hope y'all know who Barrington Levy is. And I realized that after me doing that a lot of you were going to fucking Google 
just change like the weather. The song changed like the weather. More than likely, if you don't do the original, do the remix. The one with the hot, a hot sex beat. So you actually understand that reference. I can't believe I'm trying to get people to understand the references. If this is supposed to be like this is supposed to be an entry point. Like if you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't know what I'm talking about. But I think it's more fun if we're all on the same page. So I'm gonna be magnanimous and give y'all clues and shit. Be happy I'm doing this episode in the morning. Well, then it doesn't matter for me because it's all morning. I don't sleep. Uh, what's another one I could think of? Mm. The Beat Nuts Stone Crazy. I'll go on record as saying, yes, this was a rap summer album. I'm not 100% sure if everybody listening is familiar with this particular album. I love it. I think, the, wait, actually, I think the Beat Nuts, this might be the record with the Beat Nuts, like, bigger hits on it. Um... Is turn it out on this record and um watch out now on 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 this record possibly um so can I think of any other ones? I'll say Fun Crusher Plus is a summer album, but I'm not a hundred percent sure that everybody actually is familiar with Fun Crusher Plus like I am. But as far as being ahead. Uh, like underground person backpacker 1997 and also atmospheres overcast summer albums uh technically does that mean that um no i think that came out later yeah i think that came out later i'm of course referring to um latirix latirix the album latif and lyrics born latirix album that didn't come out in the summer that came out in the fall uh, lady don't take no shit. Um, but yeah, it's funny that I'm doing this because, again, rap does have winter and summer album distinctions. R&B doesn't have summer albums. There are albums that came out during the summer, sure. When I think about, of course, let's go to 1988. Uh, Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cruel and New Edition's Heartbreak. Those would technically be the equivalent of an R&B summer album. But here's the thing. While these albums were released in the summer, the Heartbreak Tour began September 15th, 1988. Don't Be Cruel really blew up on the charts and took the number one spot in the fall. You know, I'll Be Sure's album came out in, in the spring and it was climbing up the charts in the summer. Then, of course, New Edition and Bobby Brown started kicking his ass, and they were all near the top of the charts, you know? But then, once the tour started, the shit really started blowing up going into the fall. 1988 into 1989, that's when the the real action began. So, technically... Not a summer album. And we can't say shit like Paul Abdul's Forever Your Girl, the summer album, because that album took, what, eight, nine, ten months to climb the charts? And then by 1989, it was the biggest album in 1989. So it's weird to try to do the same thing with rap that you do with R&B. R&B is far more multi-purpose and plays doesn't play as much into seasons like SWV's about time if you said that was a summer album people will stare at you like you're on crack you know like what do you mean summer summer album but if I say 
that a specific rap album like Earl's Doris is a winter album, people are like, absolutely. And I feel as though it kind of hindered the album as far as people understanding it and riding with it because it came out during the summer as opposed to the winter. When it rains, when it's cold outside, play Doris. Matter of fact, play any Earl album. I don't think we appreciate Earl's Earl Sweatshirt's output because and you have I, people say you have to be in a kind in, in the right mindset or the right kind of mindset or the right mood to listen to it. Now, mood music. Here's the thing, right? I had to accept that there are people that want to hear certain kind of music at a certain time. Now, you have to remember, you're dealing with somebody who doesn't really sleep like that. I don't really, like, go to clubs, and I don't work out. All right? So I had to realize that and look at myself and realize that other people aren't me. You know? I'm super self-aware. You know, and like one of the things is I always try to look for my blind sides. It helps me when I write because when you write screenplays and scripts and shit like that, you can't write yourself in every character. You have to get out of your own head. You have to get out of your own your own systems and your own belief systems and and your own hang ups. And you have to fucking open yourself up to the rest of the fucking world and other people's viewpoints. All right. All right. And it helps when you get older. And you shut up and listen to people. And also, that's a good way that helps you with dialogue. When you actually are around different people and you listen to people. A lot of people that write have a hard time writing women. Yeah. There's a reason. Again, let's talk about, let's get back to the point, right? Um, so... I have to realize that there's different moods for different kinds of music and people need to hear this then or this now or this then. For me, I'm kind of straightforward. I want to hear what I want to hear whenever. Of course, the only time I can really relate to mood music is there's certain music that I write to. There's certain albums that I play when I write. Like, the album I'm listening to right now, like, when I write the most is, um, this album called, uh, Being Woke Ain't Fun. That's the joint I'm listening to right now. Chris Crack. Um, and then there's another joint that just came out. Um, it's the album by, uh, Animos and Ka. The Hermit and the Recluse. So this is, this is music that I listen to when I write. And this is what makes me realize that people listen to different music at different times. Sometimes people want to listen to Migos. Sometimes people want to listen, listen to, to whoever the fucking arm, the mainstream R&B artists that people actually listen to. I don't know. I don't listen to that shit. But people have different times they want to hear different music. And that's kind of how it works with other people. But I feel like with R&B, it's not a seasonal thing. It's more of a mood thing. Whereas with rap, I guess there are people that are like, I don't want to hear anything too rapidy rap rap, too lyrical and too barsy. 
and too content heavy, I just don't want to do much thinking. So let's just play something light and airy. Again, this is something that's hard for me to relate to because I'm the type of motherfucker that will watch a three-hour movie during breakfast off Netflix. Provided it's on Netflix. And if not, I gotta put a flash drive in the side of the TV and watch something else. You know, I'm the kind of guy that watches documentaries at 5 a.m. Again, I think I explained it. I'm not really the... I watch a romantic comedy and I pick it apart. I'm terrible with that type of shit. I can't ever turn my brain off and just enjoy things. It comes with being a historian. Being a historian means you're a fucking killjoy. All the time. And it's kind of the reason why I just can't let certain shit go or misinformation go. And it's also why certain a whole bunch of people hate my guts. Yeah, that was me opening my refrigerator. It's my house and I live here. It's me casa and me vivaki. See, this is the beauty of me uh, doing this podcast on my phone and not sitting down in a chair. I can walk around my apartment doing whatever the fuck I want to do. And I just looked down and it's been, this is, we're going into the 42nd minute of this podcast. So I'm going to close this in about the next three minutes. And I'm trying to find something to, that I can use in order to stop talking. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. So, ah, we're coming up on, well, actually we're there. So, 20 years ago is when I got my job at Tower Records. And I remember it was close to my birthday. And I had just started working there and I had to wait two weeks in order to get my next check. And there were these tapes that I wanted to buy. So I put them in my employee holds. And of course, me being an underground backpacker, you know, it was quite obvious which albums I was trying to get. It was, um, damn, what was it? Oh, Kill Army, uh, Deadly Weaponry, and what was the fucking other album? Because it was August, it was, they came out August 11th, um, 1998. So, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to go to, uh, 1998. In. Yeah. Because I just realized I'm in my apartment and I'm sitting in front of, and I could just sit down in front of my laptop and just do this instead of trying to be an idiot and try to figure out something off the top of my head um, and not have it right. Because, you know, it still fucks with me that I was not able to identify that goddamn um, movie. It's funny because I'm starting to think, I'm like, yo, what, what movie was it? Okay, so it was um, Kill Army's Dirty Weaponry and M.O.P.'s First Family for Life. I couldn't buy them because I didn't have any money because I um, hadn't got my check yet. So, when it was finally time to get my check and my employee holds were Kill Army, Dirty Weaponry, M.O.P.'s First Family for Life, and the 
third album was Styles of Beyond 2000 Fold, which actually its 20th anniversary is today. And Styles of Beyond 2000 Fold is like a landmark underground rap album for 1998, independent rap album for 1998. Uh, Ryu and Talk Beer, uh, assistance from Bilal Bashir, and none other than the legendary Divine Styler. Um, I actually still have stickers from when I promo stickers from when I bought it from Tower Records 20 years ago. And a matter of fact, I'm gonna post it on um, Instagram. I'm actually gonna like do a whole post about this. But yeah, that's pretty much how I'm going to end this podcast because I don't want to keep talking. And I'm happy that I finally got, I'm gonna get this done before 10 a.m. And this will probably be what you're listening to all weekend. Who am I kidding? Y'all ain't listening to this shit. Maybe you are. I don't know. I just don't like to get too confident and think that, like, people actually care about what the fuck I'm doing. So, yeah. I th- if you were following me on Twitter, you already know what I'm going to name this podcast. All right, then. One. <laughs>